0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I wanna thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 to 16. Please turn with me to page 694 of the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in those days judah will be saved and jerusalem will live in safety and this is the name by which it will be called the
1: lord is our righteousness this is the word of the lord thanks be to god
0: our second text also comes from the lectionary from the gospel of luke the 21st chapter uh, verses 25 to 36 if you'd like to follow along as i read aloud page 80 And 81 in the New Testament portion of your Pew Bible. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Jesus said, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees... As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and, and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before The Son of Man. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your Son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I was talking with a mother uh, who is a member of this church yesterday. She was sharing with me how she, her husband, and their three children went out of town for Thanksgiving. Their children are all fifth grade and younger. The, the, the littlest of them all is about four years old. So they left for Thanksgiving and they came back into their neighborhood. And they came back to recognize that their whole neighborhood had decorated. All the Christmas lights were up. They could see Christmas trees Uh, in the windows of their neighbors' homes. And this little four-year-old in the back seat began to cry, began to whimper, and said, Mom, did we miss Christmas? (laughs) She said, No, we still have to wait. Christians around the world have been celebrating the season of Advent for the past 1,700 years. And as the designated set-apart sacred time that precedes Christmas... Advent is not only about waiting, it is about waiting for a particular thing to happen. It's about waiting for the coming of the Christ child once again. But it's also about waiting for the coming of the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. That part of the reign of God that remains hidden to us still that part of the reign of God that we so desperately long for in our broken world. It's a season that reminds us that the resurrected and the vindicated Christ will come again to put you and to put me and to put this whole world to rights. And so we wait for that coming. We wait for that advent. We wait for the Christ to come to us and to come to the world once more. But let us be clear, at least on this, this waiting is most certainly not docile, nor is it lifeless. Listen to this bit of wisdom from Duke Divinity Professor Christina Cleveland and she talks about this Advent waiting. She writes this, Advent is not a passive waiting, it's an active waiting. As any expectant mother knows, this waiting also involves preparation. It involves exercise. It involves nutrition and care and prayer and work. And birth. Birth involves pain, blood, tears, joy, release, and community. It's called labor for a reason. Likewise, we are in a world, she says, that's pregnant with hope. And we live in the expectation of the coming of God's kingdom on earth. And as we wait we also work, we cry, we pray, we ache, for we are the midwives, she says, of another world. She goes on to remind us that, that Advent is not A happy party. It's not some holiday festivity. It doesn't pressure us to conjure up a smile on our face. It doesn't force us to play bells that we don't want to hear rung. It it doesn't dismiss the foulest realities that are in front of us. Advent, she says, isn't about our best world. Advent is about our worst world. I mean, let that just sink in for just a moment because it is in stark contrast in the world that is created in our time and in our place right in front of our eyes during this holiday season because what we try to do with all of our fanciful lights and our decorations and our parties is we try to put on the best world. But Advent, Advent is about Our worst world. It's about the coming of God into that worst world. It's about light breaking into darkness. It's about the dark times that that we all experience, like the times the people of God experienced during the prophet uh, Jeremiah's writing. Uh, At that time, the people were in exile. They were cut off from the land, they were cut off from one another, they felt cut off from God. And it was a time that was really dark. When the world was at its worst, and here in the prophet's writing, as Lucy read for us this morning, a light-filled promise of justice, of salvation, of safety, and righteousness is spoken into existence. The words of the prophet Jeremiah are not spoken in a world at its best, but they're spoken in a world at its very worst. And I think Jesus' words in Luke 21 move in that same direction, the the coming of the justice and righteousness of God, the, the coming of the reign of God, comes to our very worst world. Jesus puts it like this. He begins to describe this world. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I mean, is this description not relevant for the worst worlds in which we live? Isn't this description accurate in both a personal and collective way? Are we not living many of our days in our worst world? Now, some will say, look, it's been this bad before. Some will argue that, that others have had it just as bad as we have had it, and, and maybe even worse than we have it. Some will encourage us to, to, you know, just get some perspective. Maybe just forget about all of this. Get some perspective, because everybody's going through something. Every generation, every person faces their own moments of darkness. And friends, that is certainly true, isn't it? Darkness and evil and sin and injustice and oppression have been part of the human story since the dawn of civilization. That's a fact. But let us not, in our age and in our time, and as it is within our control, be unwilling to name the darkness that's in front of us. You see, that's part of the contradiction of the Christian message during a season That hangs the lights and is bent on consumerism and is trying to put on the perfect world. Because this story, this story that we rally around in these four weeks during Advent, begins with our ability to name the darkness, to be honest about how dark the darkness really is, and part of the Christian witness in this season is to be able to speak that truth. This week in the New York Times, there was an illustration from a marine biologist that I, that I think is, is very helpful for our purpose here this morning. This marine biologist began studying photographs of fishermen in the Florida Keys. I know that you've seen these photographs before, right? They're, they're pictures of the fishermen, right, standing next to a giant measuring stick, Right, holding up their prize catch to show how big the fish actually is, their, their prize-winning catch, and they're smiling from ear to ear. You know these photographs. Well, this marine biologist began to study these photographs uh, decades at a time, going back 50, 60, 70 years. And what this biologist noticed was that the size of the prize-winning fish got smaller and smaller and smaller over the years. It's an environmental problem in the Keys. Many believe it's caused by, by, by human action, these environmental changes where these prize possession or these prize award-winning catches have, have shrunk over time. And from the article, Brooke Jarvis, the, the writer of the piece, said this, She said the the fish got smaller and smaller to the point where the prize catches, now listen to this, where the prize catches were dwarfed by fish that in years past were piled up and ignored. So, So the fish that are winning today were the ones that were completely discarded decades ago. But the smiles, she says, on the fishermen's faces stayed the exact same size. This is what she wrote, a bit of theology in the New York Times this past week. The world never feels fallen because we grow accustomed to the fall. The world never feels fallen because we grow accustomed to the fall. There's actually a theory that coincides with this illustration. It's called uh, shifting baseline syndrome. It happens when you have a deficiency or even an ignorance of information regarding the historical conditions or the historical experiences of of people past. And members of each new generation, what happens is they accept the situation in which they live as normal. Ignoring what has come before. This is just normal. But from a theological perspective, we might want to put it this way. The darkness does not seem that dark to us because we have simply accepted it as normal. The darkness doesn't seem dark to us because it's just normal. But I believe we have to be willing to name how dark it really is. I think that's part of what Christians do in Advent Because you can't have the light of the world break into anything but the darkness. And so we have to have the courage and willingness to name it. Because if you minimize the darkness, I believe this, if you minimize the darkness, you also minimize the amount and volume of the light we actually need. The light that God so desperately wants to bring to us. Some of the hard work of the Advent season is to not be afraid to name the darkness of our time, that we have to have courage to actually call it what it is. We must be willing to name the darkness of the catastrophes attributed and exacerbated by climate change. We must be willing to name the darkness of the reality that that life expectancy, this report just came out from the CDC this week, that life expectancy in our nation has declined because of an increase in drug overdose and death by suicide. We must be willing to name the darkness of gun violence and our weapon-obsessed culture, We must be willing to name the darkness of tear gas hurled at migrant men, women, and children who are fleeing regimes of oppression and violence for reasons, as Fox News commentator Geraldo Rivera put it, for reasons of desperation, for reasons of a desire for a better life. We must be willing to name the darkness of factionalism We must be willing to name the darkness of violence and bomb threats made at the Decatur Public Schools this very week. We must be willing to name the darkness of mental illness and the lack of resources available to vulnerable people, especially our veterans and those living on the street. We must be willing to name the darkness of renewed movements of racism and all forms of scapegoating and demonization. And we must be willing to name the darkness of leaders. And I'm talking about leaders in politics, in the church. I'm talking about leaders everywhere who preference power and prestige and partisanship over the common good. But it's not just telling the truth about the collective and communal darkness that we see. It's also telling the truth about the the darkness we see in our personal and our private lives. We must not be afraid to name that darkness either. We must be willing to name the darkness in our own struggles with mental health and and mental illness. We must be willing to name the darkness shadowing us by the secrets we carry, or or shadowing us by the things we have done and the things we left undone that, that pull us into the pit of regret We must be willing to name the darkness in the reality that our longing to have a child or our longing to find our partner or a spouse has gone unfulfilled. We must be willing to name the darkness of of marriages that are disintegrating before our eyes. We must be willing to name the darkness of the brokenness of family relationships that loom large, especially during the holidays. We must be willing to name the darkness of how far too often our lives are driven not by love, but they're driven by fear. We must be willing to name the darkness that comes when we've been out of work in a booming economy, but we've been out of work and we just can't find the right job. And we must be willing to name the darkness of the habits that are absolutely destroying our souls. You see, when we minimize the darkness or when we don't speak the truth about the darkness, we minimize the amount of light that God actually wants to bring into our lives. We minimize the amount of light we actually need for us and for the world. And just like we don't want to change the the baseline on what we name as darkness, right? We want to recognize that the fish are smaller these days. We want to recognize those things. We don't want to shift the baseline, but we also, as Christians, we don't want to shift the baseline of what we're actually waiting for. Don't settle for anything less this Advent season than God. For what we are waiting for, who we are waiting for is God, incarnate, in the flesh, to come once again into the midst of our darkness. As Jesus has said, that this God whom we wait for comes in our darkest hour and that redemption is drawing near. Friends, Advent is about our very worst world. It's about our very worst world preparing itself to receive the very best gift, the presence, justice, and righteousness of God. I'll close with this brief illustration and perhaps an invitation uh, from the mid-1700s till about 1920, which is hard to believe, 1920, Great Britain had on its books and enforced uh, in various ways and various forms what historians have come to call the Irish Penal Laws. You historians know exactly what I'm talking about, but to give a little bit of context, in Ireland, Roman Catholics and dissenting Presbyterians, there were some dissenting Presbyterians back in the day, dissenting against the British rule, these religious people were subject to laws and ordinances that made it difficult for them to actually participate in public life. They were marginalized. They couldn't hold public office. In some cases, they couldn't own land. They couldn't uh, participate in, in the economic life. They were, they were barred. And at times, they were prohibited from worshiping in public places. This was one of the many tactics that the empire utilized to force people to align with the British economic, political, and religious values of the time. And at the highest points of persecution, at the very peak of persecution, Catholic and Presbyterian families... Would put candles in their windows. This is actually one of the narratives of where we uh, come to understand why people put candles in their windows, especially during the Advent and Christmas season. Because these Catholic and Presbyterian families would do that during these high holy seasons, including Advent, including Christmas time. And when British authorities would come and they say, Why do you have the candles in your window? they would say, Oh, we're just preparing to receive Jesus, Mary, and Joseph once again this Christmas. But what it was really saying, what it was really saying was that any priest or pastor who was walking the street and would come upon that house, they would know that that candle that was lit was an invitation for them to come in. Not only to come in, but to pray and to sing songs and to read scripture and to say mass and to worship God. And here's the invitation. What would it look like if we took a posture that said, "God, you are welcome to come in to my life." What if that was the prayer for this Advent season? Perhaps we could think of it this way. Get very concrete with this. Every time you see a candle this Advent season, and you're going to see a lot of candles in worship in your homes, Out in the world, at holiday parties, all throughout the city, you're going to see candles. Every time you see a candle this Advent season, remember, remember that Advent is about God coming to our worst world. Remember that. And remember that we need to name the darkness. That's part of our call this Advent season. We need to name the darkness of our world and of our lives and, and my hope is that every time we see a candle, that in some way, in some spiritual way, that we would possess that yearning that will be the theme of this Advent season. That while we are waiting in the dark, while we are waiting in the darkest hour, while we are waiting in our worst world, oh God, come. Come righteousness, come justice. For even in the darkest hour, says Jesus... Your redemption is near. Amen.
1: Friends, having heard the word proclaimed, let us respond by rising together in body or spirit to say the words of the Apostles' Creed, which can be found in your bulletin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. The psalmist writes that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Let us now return to God the offerings of our life and the gifts of the earth.